Hello and welcome to the Scottish Rock Podcast, the official podcast of the Scottish Rock Garden Club. I'm your host Connor. As always, be sure to check out the Scottish Rock website at www.srgce.net for the most recent information on shows, lectures, the Scottish Rock Journal and the International Rock Gardener. Right, so today we're joined by Chris Parson for the third episode of the Scottish Rock Garden Club, the Scottish Rock Podcast. And today the main topic is going to be on the genus Sorbus, which Chris has a passion for. Hi Chris, how are we doing? Hello, how are you? I'm doing all right. Happy to be joined by you today. So am I, yeah. I'm doing well here in isolation. Um, I'm still working partially, so I'm kind of avoiding avoiding insanity for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's certainly quite unusual times we're currently living in as well, but yeah, glad to see we're doing okay. Yeah. Perfect. So um, just as always, we'll start off with a bit of background. So you um, are a similar age to me as well, and you started off in horticulture, studying it, um, but you didn't see it as a career straight away. It's something you kind of... No, I did. I didn't really see it as a career to start with. Um, I've always, my family, we've always been kind of keen on gardening. So my dad was a keen gardener, and his grand, his dad was a keen gardener before him. Um, so it was always kind of there in the background. Um, like, f- for example, when I was a little kid, we we would always have a greenhouse in the garden of some kind. And usually more than one, actually, because my dad was very into um, growing um, vegetables and flowers for exhibition at kind of local village shows and so on and so forth. Uh, the kind of gardening I do it is very different to that. But that's kind of it, it made it so it was kind of an easy thing to turn to when I needed some reason to kind of get uh, de-stressed in my life when I was going through college and so on and so forth um i kind of um used it as a way to de-stress and um when i didn't really want to go to university i kind of started to see it more as a career really Uh, and that's when i finally found it and i'm really glad i did i'm kind of wish i kind of wish i'd found it a lot earlier than what i did because if i had i think i'd have um well, I'd have been on the direction that I'm going much sooner. So, yeah, I, I know the feeling. It's it's something I haven't um, started working at the botanics and studying at the botanics, and then hearing about people going to different countries to look at plants and work with plants. That was something that I never got told growing up. Or yes, yeah. School. Well, it's kind of similar for me because um, when when I I, I um, when I got trained in high. I went to um, to Hoffel College, or East Durham College, as it's also known, in, in Durham, which is where I started off at, in the northeast of England. And there was a tutor there called Mike Hurst, who was, um, he had studied at RBGE, and he'd kind of, um, he'd done a lot of exploring in different places in the world. So he'd been to places like South Africa and Tibet and uh, China and all of these different kinds of places. Um, and his stories about them, although you'd get them in dribs and drabs, uh, it kind of just made it made you want to. You, you knew there was something else, something else to 
to it just rather than just kind of pottering about in a in a potting shed kind of thing it was uh there, there's there's adventures to be had and i i did eventually get get on and go on some adventures of my own but that would be much much later uh, but uh getting back to sarbus um it was Hoffel College that had a national collection of Sorbus Micromelies section. Uh, they didn't just have Micromelies section. They had uh, other sections of Sorbus as well. They had a whole range. But that was when I first kind of came to find uh, the, the beauty and, and uh, interesting features that make Sorbus good garden plants, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's such a... It's an interesting genus in the first place because it's so vast, and it's there's so there's so many different um, variations of of the type of plant you see. There's Sorbus reductor, which is an incredibly small little plant that's only yes. about thirty centimeters, and then you've got these big, incredibly shapely trees as well. Yes, yes. Well, it's it's a very complicated genus um, because I was reading something in preparation for that for, for this and it said it, it's debatable whether there's between 100 200 species and <laughs> pretty big wide ma- margin for error isn't it but yeah the reason that is is because people can't decide where to split the genus up really yeah. um because uh, well, well in a strict sense sorbus just covers the ruins the mountain ashes Mm-hmm. in the strictest sense but there's all, all these other subgenera as well that we have have previously been lumped under sorbus and there of course the white beams which should really be aria now um the service trees tora tominaria and um Carmus, which are tom sorbus tominalis and sorbus domestica and camimespolis which is sorbus uh of course uh and there's also and and well they keep dividing individual ones off as well there's another there's a there's well there's micromelies and there's also wilsonaria which is used to be sorbus megalocarpa so uh, very complicated but basically um a lot of they did they did some fight up some um some work on the um, on the genetics. They found that um, it's 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 kind of the other genera of the subfamily Meloidae are are embedded within Sorbus. So so Malus and and Pyrus are embedded in Sorbus as well. What what was Sorbus? Mm-hmm. So, they decided that they couldn't really keep it as the same genus. They had to split them up or either split them up or do something even more radical, which would be to lump Malus, Pyrus, Sorbus and all, all the subgenera of Sorbus into one big giant genus, which would also have had Catoniaster and um, Aronia and those in it as well. So, so, but that's right. a very radical idea, really, which I think most people would find difficult to get get to grips with. I mean, how do you describe to somebody that that a, a pear is basically a different kind of an apple? That's what you're trying yeah. to say. It's, it's, it's kind of you can see you can see where they're coming from, but it's um, 
it's a very radical idea. So I think the idea of splitting Sabas up is much more palatable than that. And I, I can see I can see kind of the sense in that, because I mean a white beam is a very different kind of a tree to a to a to a raw and a mountain ash. They serve different purposes in the horticultural sense as as well as being different botanically as well because of course the ruins have the pinnate leaf with um the individual leaflets and and um the white beams have entire leaves and of course there's all the differences between the, the service trees as well the wild service tree sabus terminalis kind of shares some of its features with crotagus that leaf that it has is kind of almost maple like and much more like a crotagus really than than the rest of the subfamily Meloidae. Yeah, it's, it's certainly the the diversity within the genus. It's, it's very interesting that they would lump it all in. So you'd, yeah, your apples and pears would all be the same as your, uh, yeah, Contone Aster as well, and they'd put them all together. But there is... Yeah, it's, it's certain, very, very cumbersome, wouldn't it, I think? Yeah, there is certain key differences for me as well, Just just seeing them... Um, growing them in the garden and then seeing them in the wild as well. There is quite. But a, I think the, I think the trouble, the trouble. Sorry, I'm I'm butting over you there. But the trouble that they've had in the past with kind of separating the different subgenera of Sorbus up is that they hybridize very freely. But they don't. They the Sorbus don't actually just hybridize freely with other beams and and service trees, so on and so forth. They also hybridize with Cotonia and all of those as well, all of those members of the subfamily Meloidae, they can all hybridize freely as long as they flower at the same time as well. Um, so, kind of, you know, you can see why they, some people think they should lump them all into one giant genus, but I think probably for the sake of easy taxonomy and, and, and you, what you've got to remember that taxonomy at the end of the day is supposed to make people's lives easier <laughs> even <laughs> though it, it yeah. doesn't seem like it does but um yeah i think i think they should probably go for the less the less radical option hopefully i'm hoping <laughs> yeah i think that would make everyone's life a bit easier i think yeah, yeah in schools trying to explain that an apple and the pear are the same. Um, it might not go down well, but mm, yeah. Well, you can see the similarity. Yeah, I suppose there's similar things for lemons and oranges botanically. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, an orange is just a funny lemon, really, uh, botanically speaking. Could but, say that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, maybe maybe it's just going to be like one of these. It's going to be uh, smug plant people. Knowing that, like an avocado is really a berry, and uh, <laughs> a banana is really a berry. Maybe it's just going to be these kind of. It's going to be yeah. like plant people laughing together. Maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. So if we that was quite, um, that was a lot of the botany behind it as well. But growing the plants as well, they make fantastic garden plants. They do, yes. They do. Um, they're great for small gardens as well. I mean, there's there's two sorbus. I think one that you just mentioned there was sorbus reductor, which yeah. comes in two different forms actually. That well, this is debatable, but um, 
the, because the monograph it states different theories for this the, there's a suckering farm and a non-suckering farm so there's one that spreads underground and there's one that doesn't and one of the theories put forward for this is that if you plant uh, a plant of sorbus reductor deeply then it will sucker but if you plant it shallowly then it won't um, but I, I think the general consensus with a lot of nursery people is that there is actually two forms of it about, I guess you'd call them two micro species, but we'll, we'll get onto the micro species bit later. But yeah, there's, there's also, um, Sorbus porterifolia, which is the smallest Sorbus of, um, any of them. It's only 10 centimeters tall. And I mean, those two, I mean, anybody can accommodate those two in the trough, mm-hmm. uh, Oh yeah, they're very growable. And if you have a small garden, there's plenty of sorbus of the um, the mountain ash variety that only get to three three meters tall at the maximum. And they'll take if you grow them from seeds, they'll take years to, I mean, like twenty years to get to that kind of height. But they'll flower from seed within what if you if you grow them and you don't you make sure they're not pot bound, they'll they'll flower and seed and and bear fruits in five to seven years or something like that and yeah. some, there's one species sorbus californica which will fruit from seed in in about three years it doesn't take very long at all no that's quite impressive yeah uh, me and you both have uh, an adoration for a particular sorbus as well that we've spoken about sorbus alnifolia yeah, well, I, I was wondering when you, when you got to ask me what my favorite sorbus are. I, I, I was actually going to, I think if I was, if we get to that part later on, then I, I might say something different. But yeah, I know, I know sorbus alnifolia, sorry, is your favorite sorbus. And I do agree with that. There was a very nice specimen of that because I did a, a year's traineeship at Kew. Um, and behind the stable yard, there was a lovely multi-stemmed, specimen of that sorbus alnifolia and it has this wonderful yellow foliage color and wonderful bloomy red lipstick cherry red fruits really really nice yeah maybe not my favorite white bean but I, I very good plant very nice plant yeah i just think it's got a great shape it, it's got a a pretty good level of growth on it as well and the habit of it's great and then the yeah well, very upright and then yeah a good trip yeah and then good open color as well all, all that you yeah. want <laughs> yeah. and a lot of the, a lot of the white beams that i would say the white beams have a different kind of peel from the mountain ashes i would say they tend to kind of leaf out in spring and very often it's the um the colors of the of the unfurling foliage that uh, make the white beams um more interesting mm-hmm so such as the, the likes of say Sorbus wardii have lovely nice silvery leaves uh, and there's also some that leaf out very early such as Sorbus calanura, Sorbus megalocarpa which come out with a very nice bronzy colour to the leaves uh, and totally frost resistant as well mm-hmm. uh, whereas the mountain ashes they're more I would say autumnal trees they're, they're more kind of for the autumn foliage colour they tend to have much more spectacular autumn foliage color in general yeah. and of course the wonderful colors of the fruits which can last for varying amounts of time on the tree and there's there's definitely a, an order 
with the mountain ashes that the, the, the birds will take them because there's a there's a there's quite a few different birds that will predate them things like um, thrushes blackbirds starlings and migratory birds such as red wings wax wings and so on and so forth uh, but they always go for the red ones first and i think that's to do with it's the birds are more perceptive to the red end of the light spectrum yeah. it's not that the, the white fruited forms are poisonous or anything it's just that they prefer those and they start with those and then like it'll be the amber fruited forms such as your joseph rocks next then it'll go to the white fruited forms and the, the white ones will last right into winter often as late as january before anything takes them yeah that makes perfect sense uh yeah, I wonder if that you could get like the different tones of the fruits, and then the birds must just go through quite methodically, and then pick each one from the reddest ones, and then all the way to yeah, the white. they do. They do. They don't leave fruited ones alone totally. They will take them because I was um, actually in a friend's garden, probably a mutual friend's garden, um, earlier on in the year, over in Midlothian. I was watching out of their window uh, plant, um, birds on a Sorbus vilmarinii in this would have been in February um, and they were they were taking those even though even though they tend to avoid white fruit they will take them eventually so it's, it's kind of I suppose it's good for wildlife because if you have a, a few different colored forms in your garden then you're going to extend the food the, the, the food for so that they have it you know, right through the winter rather than just because because of Sabus occiparia, they yeah. really green yeah. will just drip a whole tree. Over the course of a few weeks, August, the, the fruit will all be gone pretty much mm -hmm. on, on occiparia. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's I've always liked the fruits as well. And like you said, I have noticed as well that the mountain ash, um, they do tend to have predominantly more um or better you could say autumnal color fall color um, yes yeah. there are a lot some of the really good ones um, uh such as oh, there's some that you can buy quite readily from garden centers such as uh sabus oleongensis olympic flame yeah. which is a lovely lovely red i mean it competes with like any of the aces for autumn color i would say yeah. and and of course, Sabus sargentiana, which is stunning, really stunning, in in and and very bold foliage as well. Sabus sargentiana has the largest leaves of the Sabus genus of the Rowans anywhere, uh, at about a foot long, uh, well something like that. Um, but it, it's such bold foliage, and uh, it, some some Sabus kind of you, they look great up close, but that one it, in the landscape is just it, in in the autumn is a glowing beacon of of color yeah, uh, amazing and, and and the buds on that one are quite interesting as well because it's kind of more like a, a horse chestnut they're very sticky so it's quite unusual and and the shape is quite unusual as well very thick thick twigged hmm. okay yeah, i've noticed the the bark as well is quite interesting you get somewhat speckled bark and then the lenticels which is the the little yeah. marks on the bark are quite pronounced in some, and then not so much on on others. That's, 
that's something that uh, sorbus don't tend to be selected for. But there are there are a few cultivars. Well, well, there's one cultivar I know of that's actually been selected for its bark colour, and that's sorbus occiparia bisneri, which is a a, a very nice tree. Um, I I haven't seen much of that lately. There was one at my college a long time ago, but I've never seen another one since. Um, but it has a very very kind of vestigiate upright habit um and it's just the the kind of coppery tones of the branches unfortunately the, the branches of sorbus tend to get covered in lichen well w w it, which is a nice thing but it, it covers up the effect of what what that sorbus was actually selected for unfortunately yeah. so it kind of means that it's one of those trees that you probably might have to clean if you want <laughs> if you want to grow it for bark interest but it's a very nice cultivar and I would if I ever had a garden that was big enough I would definitely seek that one out yeah just to just to go back to the the botany as well just because you touched on the the fertilization program yes. and how how difficult it is to distinguish them as well they do readily hybridize but they do some very unusual ones as well different kind of the way they um reproduce there's different um, kind of methods of reproduction in Sarbus, and it's linked to the ploidy. Uh, th that is the chromosome numbers, basically. Mm -hmm. So m most plants are diploid, and all pretty. Much, I think all animals are diploid, but basically, plants can be diploid, but also their chromosomes can double up and become polyploid. So you can get tetraploids and triploids which have what well, so so tetraploids have four sets of chromosomes um and triploids have three sets of chromosomes and that affects basically when when plants become tetraploid they start doing odd things uh, and it, it just to go off topic a bit i've noticed this with um the celandines as well because there's two forms of celandine there's a ranunculus ficaria var fertilis which is diploid and there's var verna which is tetraploid and when it's and the tetraploid one has plantlets in the leaf axles and the and the fertilis doesn't mm -hmm. but it's kind of similar with sorbus because in sorbus it's the polyploids that reproduce apomictically and the the, the diploids reproduce the normal way so Apomixis, what's apomixis? Well, it's basically clonal reproduction from seed. So the other, other plants from the rosaceae do this as well. Um, so Alcamilla does it, uh, Amelanchia lamarchii does it, uh, and Alcamilla, Alcamilla mollis do it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's, something to, it's something that might seem complicated, but people be aware of and it, it's, it's something it, it, that's interesting with the nursery is that a lot of people uh, a lot of the, a lot of nurserymen um they're graft sorbus that are you know that don't need to be grafted mm -hmm. like sorbus cashmeriana or sorbus pseudohypiensis or carmazina they don't need to be grafted because you can just grow the seeds uh and the seedlings will be perfect clones of the original parent plant. 
um, of course, you need to you would need to graft um, plants that that weren't um, upper that, that, that produced in the usual way, or even some species, because some of the species uh, which are diploid, they they can hybridize with pretty much growing it in a collection you couldn't grow it from seed because they were just hybridized with anything else which it was which is around yeah so so to kind of re reiterate the diploids are they reproduce normally uh, triploids are partially but rare uh so something like 90 95 percent of the seedlings will come true mm. and a, and a five percent hybrids and the tetraploids they um they are pretty much 100% apomictic that's the way i understand it anyway yeah yeah it's 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 a fascinating um it's a, a fascinating complex within them as well and especially if if you want to look at other plants as well the the largest um kind of chromosome in the plant kingdom's Paris, and it's octoploid. And there's a whole yeah. bunch of its uh, kind of chromosome count that's not really doing anything. And I think the Sorbus is the same. They've, they've got these incredibly complicated, um, you know, methods of fertilization as well. And yeah. yeah. It gets more and more specialized. It kind of shows you how they've, they've managed to evolve and how they've managed to reproduce, not only... To fertilize themselves the somewhat conventional way with pollen landing yeah. on the flower. I think also people kind of ask what what kind of evolutionary advantage of apomixis is. Mm -hmm. I like to be honest, I don't really think there's much of a purpose to it. I'm not even sure there is much of a purpose to it. It's kind of just I guess it, I, I guess you'd call it a glitch, maybe. Yeah. In, in, but it's yeah. I think a lot of the things that go on in life like that in evolution, they don't necessarily have to happen for a reason. They just they just happen that way as kind of by accident, and um, it, it works, <laughs> so it keeps <laughs> on going. But yeah, because although the the reproducing, it's it's a clone, so therefore the genetic diversity is practically non-existent. Um, and yeah, then... so that 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 would seem problematic in in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I mean, if you if you think of, of a tetraploid plant, just say Sorbus cashmeriana, which is a lovely white-fruited species, um, if you think of a plant like that, you might think, oh, well, it can only it can only, you know, clone itself. It can't go any further, but it can actually give, although it can't take. The it can't take pollen from other from other trees. It can give its own pollen back to a diploid, and if it crossed to say I don't know Sarbosocuparia, for example, the resulting plant you'd get from that would be a triploid because the obviously Sarbus cashmeriana is a tetraploid, and so it would divide down and you'd get two chromosomes coming from that and the, the and the diploid subosocuparia which you get one set of chromosomes coming from that and you get a triploid mm -hmm. 
which would be that would be now that, that the resulting plant of that would be pollen sterile because because triplides do tend to be pollen sterile. So like, well, as as anybody who's studied you know your RHS level levels will know because I mean Bramley seedling the apple Bramley seedling is a triploid and it if you you'll know that you can't plant that as a tree on its own. Mm-hmm. You need to have uh, two you know other trees in the same pollination group anyway i'm yeah. going out off the long meander there <laughs> <laughs> no not at all yeah um so we've got a couple native sorbus as well but we've got a very interesting one which i first heard about in america actually which someone informed to me was the rarest tree in the world in scotland which isn't entirely true but it certainly made me very excited about it, but that was Sorbus arenensis from yeah. Aaron. Wow, I mean, Sorbus arenensis, but there's also Sorbus pseudofenica and pseudomanichii. But yeah, Sorbus arenensis is from Aaron, as, oh. as the name suggests, but there's a whole complex of Sorbus on that island. Yeah. Um, and basically, they derive from Sorbus occiparia, crossing with the rock white bean, Sorbus rupicola, um, which is, so that's that's a diploid crossing to a tetraploid, resulting in Sorbus arenensis, which is a triploid, which is like what I was just saying. Um, so basically, yeah, you've got a plant there, which is pollen sterile, and it doesn't fruit very much. If you notice, Sorbus arenensis doesn't fruit very much. That's also because it's a triploid, but it will it will fruit a little bit. Um, but the, also, once you, once you get to that stage, you'll find that it'll back cross with other. Well, it'll back cross back to the parents, so it'll back cross to Occiparia again, and th- then you end up with another Sorbus, which is also apomictic, uh-huh. uh, and, and which in that case was named Sorbus pseudofenica, and they also found an, uh, found another another one as well, which had this a similar parentage but was slightly different. Called Sorbus pseudo manichii. Yeah, they in the same like, area. They don't like making it easy, do they? <laughs> no, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very complicated. But the the what I'm trying to say is that some of these trees are very rare by by the numbers mm-hmm. of them that are there. But the genetic, the the genetics to make those species, which are basically just hybrids, uh. Is is already there in the in the plants that are, quite, are fairly common. So it's kind of it's kind of like there's a bit of a dilemma, isn't there? It's kind of like oh, these trees are some of the rarest in the world, but but if we're trying to conserve biodiversity, mm-hmm. there's a dilemma because they're really are they all that different from what there already is? Really, yeah. They're just a recombination of the genes, aren't they? Really, yeah, yeah. But but yeah. Anyway, that's that's getting into the semantics of stuff, which is probably a bit deep. <laughs> yeah, and that that's a whole big topic about yeah conservation about, coming into the stuff as well. Conservation of biodiversity, yeah. yeah. Which it's like it's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of kind of things like that, isn't there? Because um, there's 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 another mm-hmm. kind of example with um uh, we actually have two plants of Sorbus occiparia subspecies Madarensis, which used to be its own species 
Mm-hmm. Madarensis here at Logan, and they've got two of them. We must be one of the few botanic gardens, I think, anywhere that has two seed grown Sorbus Madarensis next to each other, like that. Mm-hmm. Anywhere that is must be down to a handful of plants in the wild in Madeira up on Pico de Arriro. Um, but anyway, uh, there's the dilemma with that as well because that now that that has been changed from it being its own species and it was critically endangered. To being a subspecies of Sorbus occiparia. So basically, it's just a subspecies of something which is very common. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, yeah, do, do you give it the same conservation value when it's just basically a subspecies of something that's very, very commonplace? And it's, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, people don't think about it that way. They tend to just think about plants in terms of, oh, that's a different species, it's got a different name, but. I kind of think about it sometimes in, in more of like, is is this plant truly different? But I, I like Sobs Madarensis, I, I really do actually. So I, I, I would I would like to conserve that one. I think um, it would definitely be a worthwhile thing to do actually, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, but that that's I think the beauty of horticulture in many ways. You start talking about one thing and then it's, it includes, you can't talk about yeah. one plant without talking about it in the garden, talking about it in the wild, talking about its genetics, talking about propagation. It's just, it's what happens when... It's, it's all it's all interlinked. Yeah, 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 for sure. That's what I like about it. Yeah, you can link it to all kinds of different things. And um, it's a web, it's a web of knowledge. Yeah. So you were saying that you've um, went into the wild, but you didn't do it until a bit later on in your career, and you were very fortunate enough to go to China. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, I um, did, did it twice, actually. I didn't just do it once. Uh, but the first time, uh, I, I managed to get bursary from winning the Young Horticulturist of the Year, which is a, a yearly competition. Um, and I got a £2,500 bursary from that, which was great. And I've I used it to, you know, with Kevup and Plants, uh, which of course at the time was owned by Stella and David Rankin. Uh, it's now moved on. They still have input, but um, it's moved on to new ownership. Um, um, and anyway, uh, it was a really, really brilliant trip, that first trip. And I, I loved the trip so much that I, obviously decided to go, go go again this the the next year the first one was in 2016 and um it was in june so it wasn't a very good time of the year to see sarbus really you could only really see them in flower and to be honest you can really tell more from the fruit than you can from the flowers that the, the, especially at that time of the year when the sarbus leaves aren't really even fully expanded in many cases mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't a good time of the year Things like rhododendrons and iris and mulas and mechanopsis, um, and those were definitely the highlights of the trip. But uh, getting on Sarbus, um, it just opens your your mind to how mind-bogglingly complex Sarbus are in the wild. Uh, when you go to sites that have been visited before, we visited the, Kang, the Tangshan in um, Yunnan. Above the above the city of Dali, um, and now Roy Lancaster went there on the Sino-British expedition in 1980, 
and Keith Rushford on that mountain as well. And some of those subs, you can kind of, you kind of know what the what what's there because they've been there and they've documented that. So on that mountain, we saw Sabas Pseudo Vilmarinjai, Sabas Hypoglaka, which is a a rather odd one, uh, not a particularly ornamental species. Uh, has lovely glossy leaves, uh, but its fruit tend to fall apart very easily, and uh, they don't hang on very long. And we also saw a Sabas Philippines type close to the summit. Um, but the rest of the trip, where we were getting in areas where not so much was known, the thing is you can look at Sabas and you can say, well, that looks like Sabas corneana based on the description. And especially at that time of the year when you have all of the information to hand, like mm -hmm. all the, the fruit colour and the expanded leaf shape and stuff like that, uh, you've got limited information to start with. And you often can't really say an awful lot about them until you get to see the fruit. And even then, if you see the sorbus and you can you can compare it with descriptions, it's if, if you until you you know collect some of the seeds and you get it back into cultivation and somebody can count the chromosomes. A big part of identifying sorbus is knowing if the plants are diploid or tetraploid, like I said before. Mm -hmm. And if if they're diploid, then they can be attributed to any one of the known diploid species that are already in, already in existence. But if they're tetraploid or triploid, like the Aaron white beam, then they can be named as a new micro species or kind of put under the heading of a, of an aggregate of micro species. What by that is um, aggregates of microspecies exist, like Taraxacum. Taraxacum officinale is an aggregate of microspecies. So when you look at dandelions in your garden, there are hundreds of microspecies of dandelion that come under that heading of Taraxacum officinale aggregate. So very complicated in the wild. Um, and the second, the second trip I went on. I was really hoping to see some uh, quite rare sobers. So I was hoping to see Reducta, Porterifolia, and Heroiana, because we were going to the very northwest of Yunnan, where it borders Burma and Tibet to the north. It's, it was on the Gaoligongshan range. That was with a, with a trekking company called Whistling Arrow. And um, Unfortunately, I didn't see any of those species, which was a real shame. But I did see a lot of species which um, kind of look, some of them look like Sorbus philippines. But again, like I say, it was again, it was in June and it was very difficult to tell what some of them were. But fascinating to look at all the different leaf shapes and ponder what they might have been. And it just really fascinating. And I think China is the kind of country that I, oh, you know, obviously... Coronavirus dependent, <laughs> you could keep going back to pretty much every year and just go to a different part of it and just and see different things. And it's a it's a country that you can never you could never get bored of traveling in. It's yeah. really amazing. And then different times of the year will be completely different as well. I of imagine. course, yeah, yeah, because I've never been in autumn, so I've never seen like the autumn gentians and of course the sabers. Which would be incredible to see them and and when they're actually. Um, yeah, 
Mm-hmm. And that's why autumn colours are very good as well, of, 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 of all the trees in, in, in that part of the world. Yeah. Um, I, I, I personally as well have always struggled with sorbus to try and identify them. Um, just po- probably because they're quite a complex uh, group of plants as well. And, and yeah. yeah, is there any that you can pick off that are really easy to identify or little tricks of the trade that you've learned to uh, well, yeah. Again, this is—it's it's like I said. If, you, if you're seeing them in a garden setting, you can rule certain things out. Yeah, I mean, uh, are, are you talking about species? Or are you talking about cultivars? Uh, or... Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think most people could probably recognise Sorbus Joseph Rock, um, but Sorbus Joseph Rock is a self-fertile hybrid, and it's self-compatible and sometimes you, you will get seedlings people people who've grown seedlings of it that look very similar to it but aren't actually the true Joseph rock has a specific color of fruit it's it's amber yellow if you see anything that joseph rock, joseph rock that has orange fruit then it probably isn't joseph rock but um it also has a curvature to the leaf uh, it's a very distinctive and it's widely distributed um, uh, things like you can you can tell uh, if you're looking at say there's a there's a section of sorbus this in the strict sense called section disculleries um, and that group of plants it, it contains plants such as sorbus forestii and sorbus pseudohupiensis and glabriuscula what were known as hupiensis but the name got changed um and the a defined feature of those is a bluey green leaf um and the flowers are held in a middle panicle so rather than being a flat corymb they're in a pyramidal panicle mm-hmm. so to speak um and uh, and of course if you look at the naked twigs you um a red bud rather than the usual Sorbus occiperi would have a black bud with kind of white tomentose hairs on it. Um, so that's a good way to distinguish them. Of course, the fruit, of course. Because mm-hmm. uh, um, the, 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 um, as, as, the subject, as the genus is actually divided down, we're talking in the strict sense, so I'm just talking about the rowans here. They are, they are divided by fruit colour. So the red orange fruited species are divided into one sub genus and the white fruited white to pink fruited species are divided into another into another subgenus. So and, and there's little things as well. You can even tell from if you're crushing the fruit, you can you can look at the seeds, the colour can even tell you things. Like um, oh. if you're looking at an orange fruited species, orange red, then the the seeds will be a very light straw color. If you're looking at a white fruited species, you'll you'll find the seeds will be black. So there's 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 little things like that. Um, yeah. yeah, that's very helpful. And um, yeah, so you're currently at Logan Botanic Gardens as well, which is one of the. Uh, satellite gardens for the Royal Botanic Gardens of Edinburgh. 
It is, yeah, yeah, and three years. Uh, very good. Is it? Yes. Yeah, three years. Uh, three years. Yeah, I have. I think. Yeah. No, no. I, hang on a minute. No, <laughs> it's two years now. Just, just gone two years. Sorry. Two years, right? Yeah, I couldn't remember. I, I knew you'd been there because I, I went to visit, and I have to say, Logan is a is is a very esoteric garden for Scotland. You you go in this winding path with um, yeah. about six foot high cordylines, and then you suddenly get into this kind of oasis, which doesn't feel as if it should be in Scotland at all. And the plants. Yeah, I, I can remember when I first came to Logan uh, for my interview <laughs> and I, I hadn't actually been before because i mean not many people get out here we only have like twenty-five thousand visitors a year even less now from how covid is, is hit us but um uh, it, it's a real shame that more people don't get out here because it is just it's such an incredible microclimate that we have here we're kind of on a on a peninsula known as the rins of galloway and uh it juts out into the sea and it's surrounded by ocean on all three sides. Of course, that means that you know, the usual maximum winter temperature, the usual minimum winter temperature, the average minimum, average minimum winter temperature is minus three most years, but it's, it's nearly frost-free, getting nearly frost-free. I mean, like, on a very cold year, it'll get to maybe minus eight. At the, at the at the at the lowest, um, so we can grow a, a lot of amazing things here. So we've got, as you say, the cord lines, which they self-sow here. They're they're almost weeds. And <laughs> um, so there's so many plants here that are almost weeds. I mean, like Grisalinia self-sows by the truckload, and uh, things like that. Even fuchsias self-sow because the conditions are just so ideal. And um, of course, the tree ferns grow really well here, and they self they sow their own spores down. And in some areas of the garden, we've got uh, young plants of those growing away that are just growing themselves because the conditions are just so ideal um, here. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth a visit for all those people that that haven't visited before, um, especially when yeah, I'd say it's, it's definitely one of the best gardens in the uk for sure yeah it's, it's uh it, you must do it before you die definitely it's want to do before you die <laughs> yeah but I, I get to live here and, and be here every day so good for me yeah perfect um and just to finish up as well you have got your own facebook page for sorbus as well yeah, I started that about three years ago, um, just because we acknowledged that there wasn't a group for Sarbus, as far as anybody knew. So we set one up, and uh, people put pictures up every autumn, usually, and we we we, we, we would like pictures and, and stuff at other times of the year, but uh, it hasn't really got off the ground well yet but i mean we've got over 120 members worldwide so it's 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 there's a movement out there there's a sabbath appreciation movement (laughs) slowly slowly it's slowly getting momentum (laughs) you'll be getting a lot of questions to id stuff now i imagine (laughs) yeah that'll be that'll be fun (laughs) 
Yeah, it's, it's always fun. I, 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 I do enjoy giving out advice and uh, IDing things or, or trying to ID things, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, is there a specific book as well that's, that's like a golden guide for Sorbus? Well, for the for the Mountain Ashes, you can't really go far wrong with the um, the monograph that was published by Hugh McAllister in two thousand and five. That's that's um, one of the really good ones. There's also a monograph on the British native source published, in, I think it was twenty ten. Um, but anyway, I don't own that. Um, God, it's very difficult to own because unfortunately, it's gone out of print. And, but the other one is readily available. So. Ah, perfect. Right. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Chris. That was a, a fascinating insight to an incredibly tricky plant, but an incredibly garden-worthy plant that you know has been in cultivation for for an incredibly long time in many different countries and greatly appreciated by many 